Grant, thank you very much for joining us on Keyhole Conversations. Um, we are kind of a little bit of strangers to each other. We've probably talked for a maximum of 30 minutes, both times out at the Lee K wildlife pond area located in uh, Salt Lake Valley, Utah. And as soon as I came across you, I was like, this is a genuine man. This is someone who is a salt of the earth person that I know I need to talk to more. And so far as what I can tell from you, you are, um, Briefly, are you from around Utah? Did you grow up around here or do you come from no, some other place? I, I was born and raised in Los Angeles area. And when when I was 12, we moved to Page, Arizona. And uh, so that's kind of where I grew up my formative years growing up in Page, which was fantastic. You know, right on Lake Powell and during the summertime, party haven during the winter nothing to do but get in trouble so <laughs> kind of what we did so what brought you up to utah from those areas so i was still living in page and i got married and i had a daughter and then we moved to flagstaff arizona for a couple of years and uh we ended up getting divorced and my ex-wife moved to albuquerque new mexico and I was driving semis back then, so I had driven up through Salt Lake before, and I just loved the scenery. So when she moved to Albuquerque, I ran into another truck driver, and I just kind of jokingly asked, well, are you hiring? And he goes, well, yeah, we are here, kind of. Yeah. And I says, well, let me know, and I'll come work for you. So I moved up to Salt Lake, and I've been here... Probably close to 30 years now, I guess, 35. So what years was that? I, th I think that was right around the early 90s. Early 90s? Yeah. So what drove you into uh, a career with driving semis? And well, I never really graduated high school. I, I cruised through high school, partied recreational drugs this this was the hippie area era you know mm -hmm. and just into all that party and everything and just coasted through high school had no clue what i was going to do with my life so my dad was like well, why don't you join the navy so i signed up to go do that but they didn't have an opening for what i wanted to do so in the meantime, they had a truck driving position come over and they had a guy taught me how to drive. And once I learned how to drive truck, I loved it. So I loved driving, loved seeing the scenery and everything and uh, ended up running over the road for like 20 years. Wow. So what, what year were you, uh, what year did you start driving a big rig? 1975. So that's for... Layman folk who might not know, because I'm kind of in the CDO culture as well. That's before, that's when you guys were on like chauffeur licenses, correct? Yeah. Or, yeah, there was no CDL. And it was like taking a driving license test for a car. <laughs> and I don't even remember having to do a over, you know, a over the road program or yeah, anything. Yeah. They just gave you a learner's permit for six months and then they give you your license. Wow. There's, yeah, there was like 25 questions on the 
test, you know, and they were true and false, and they all involved cars, had nothing to do with driving trucks. Wow, that's so, amazing. So, yeah, I've been doing it about 48, 49 years. So you did 22 years over the road. Have you been everywhere in the continental United States? I've, I've Five states I haven't been to, North Dakota, the Carolinas, Alaska, and one other, I think, up in the northeast somewhere, and that's it. And those are the only ones you didn't drive to? Yeah. Wow. So you've been, you literally have been everywhere. You know the interstate system through and through. You know it all. Right. Out of all the states that you've been to, I've done quite a bit of traveling around the United States, and still, and I love my home of Utah. Don't get me wrong. The thing that's ruining Utah right now to me is just the massive influx on how much it costs to live here and the influx of people. I always tell people Utah sucks. Go away. You know, don't don't move here. But I have yet to find a state that has the vast landscape and beauty that Utah has. No. There isn't one. I don't think there is. Utah is it. Out of all the the states I've been to, Utah is the best, in my opinion, for scenery. As far as other stuff like the traffic in the valley and the growth and all that, I could do it without that. Mm-hmm. You know, I I would actually prefer to live in a small town like Page. Yeah. You know, where you don't have that, but. You know, and you, Salt Lake's really, c- compared to other big cities, it's a small city. It, it is. And, and there's nothing to do here, really, you know, um, especially if you're not Mormon, mm-hmm. LDS, you know. So. Yeah, a lot of people get culture shock. Like, and it's funny because you say that we, like, I complain about it, but. I was recently in Dallas and then I was not too long ago down in LA and I don't know how people live there. Yeah. It's a concrete jungle and it's just, there is just too many people for my, like I would literally go through a mental health crisis exactly. living somewhere like that. Exactly. So that is a blessing with salt. Like we are still that smaller, you know, when you comparatively look at other yeah, cities, small, big city, but as far as, I mean, you look at like skyscrapers and stuff, Utah doesn't have that. Oh, nothing you know? like that. Yeah. Not at all. And it's, and you, you do men- mention, and rightfully so, the LDS culture here is huge. Yes. Um, I'll have friends come in from out of town uh, or people I know from out of town, like at my work, we'll get new hires who move up here from other places. And they're just absolutely shocked. They're like, wait, you, you have to buy liquor in a liquor store and right. they're closed on Sundays. Right. And a lot of these places close right. down on Sundays. And right. I'm like, it's, it's the LDS culture around here. Yes. And, and to me, I'm not very religious. I, I grew up LDS was raised that way. But by the time I was 12, I was like, nah, this isn't for me, you know, kind of thing. It's, it's funny you say that because I was the same way. Neither one of my parents were, uh, religious one way or the other. Uh, my grandparents on both sides were LDS. So there was kind of a little bit of an influence of let's get the grandchild, me and my sister baptized. So we were baptized. She was a little later and I was right at that prime age of eight years old. And I remember after being baptized, my home teachers, uh, we went to church twice on my second time. I just didn't fit in. I was like, this is not, 
I don't mesh with this, you know? And then I remember my home teacher saying, well, now we need to get your parents sealed in the temple and then your family sealed or else you're not going to see them on the other side with your heavenly father. And that for me was like the, I'm out of this. To me, it was, uh, I found it very hypocritical. Page, Arizona is basically a LDS town too. Mm Mm-hmm. And when we moved there, it was like 2,200 people. And those people had all been born and raised there, and they all knew each other. When we moved there, I didn't know anybody, and I was not really welcomed with, you know, by them. Yeah, especially 2,200 people. Everyone knows everyone. Yes. So you're so, like the outsider. Yes. So I didn't really feel welcome there. And then... Uh, few years later they built the power plant out there and they had a whole influx of people building the power plant so it grew to about 14,000 people it had a whole bunch of kids that weren't LDS that got you know they were more welcoming they friended you but they were also the bad kids. So I hung around with the bad kids. And like I said, I, I did recreational drugs and everything all through high school and even a little beyond. And, but I had fun. I don't regret any of it. But, but to me, it was always, I was doing things bad that were against the church religion, you know, and I just, felt so hypocritical, you know, like going out smoking a joint on Saturday and going to church on Sunday <laughs> and pretending like it didn't happen. Yeah. You know, so I just, you know, pretty much said I, you know, have, I'm not going to live like that. I'm not going to live a lie. No so, kidding. So I kind of moved away from it. So growing up in Page, Arizona, you did that all through your, your formidable yeah. childhood years from from i was 12 when we moved there so last year of like junior high all through high school and i lived in page probably for another five years after that before i moved away so for fun you just kind of partied and oh, yeah. did all that party scene was there like hangout areas you'd go to quite often oh yeah because the lake was only you know, a mile away. So, you know, we'd always go, go down to the lake and party there. And the cops were hometown cops. Like, they caught you drunk. They'd tell you to go home. I don't want to see you out the rest of the night kind of thing, you know, rather than arrest you and stuff like that, you know. So, but, yeah, it was just we went out and partied. And, and the scenery, you know, we were always out exploring the scenery out there. You know, that Red Rock country, just love it, you know. So we would always go out exploring a, a lot of different areas and things. And it was it was fun. Yeah, I know. I get a lot of uh, my friends um, from time to time. They're always like, because I am... I wouldn't say like a desert dweller, but I love the desert. Yeah. And people are like, there's nothing out there. I'm like, you're not looking hard enough yeah. then because there is so much beauty in the desert itself. And just, uh, I, uh, last, last year, last Christmas, I took a trip down to Monument Valley. That whole area is just gorgeous. Can't beat it. No. You know, like, like Moab, Monument Valley, Page area, all that, it, that Red Rock, you just cannot beat it. Yeah, it's beautiful. The canyons and everything. And the majestic, 
the plateaus and everything. You just cannot beat that scenery. Do you have any state that uh, comes up like a close second with Utah that you really enjoy the scenery? Oh, Arizona, Arizona, I like a lot. Um, I like the scenery in Colorado, but I don't really care for the atmosphere, more or less, I guess. Um, I like Montana, driving through Montana. I always enjoyed that, the big sky. You, you don't know what they mean till you see it. And yeah. it's like all of a sudden, it's like, wow. Yeah, no, that's no joke. I did a trip a little while ago. I have That's one of the states I've never been to is Montana, but I did uh, traverse across uh, Iowa, Indiana, and Illinois. And that's also, and Nebraska, because um, I was going back to West Virginia and holy cow, like, like I'd been to other states where mountains weren't a huge thing, like Kentucky, it's like rolling hills, North Carolina, things of that nature, but you're surrounded by trees. Right. But, there's no, no mountains, you mm. know, what they call mountains or hills. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah especially um, when you compare it to the Rocky Mountain I, range. There's, there's a few states I like back there. I like the scenery in like Mississippi, Alabama, back through there. Uh, Louisiana, you know, like the scenery and stuff back there. Yeah. And I, uh, about a year ago, I went down to Atlanta, Georgia and everyone here that I talked to, they're like, you're going to Atlanta, Georgia, be careful down there. But I, that Southern hospitality, that is a thing that I experienced. Um, I'm curious, you say you don't like the, uh, atmosphere in Colorado. What is the atmosphere in Colorado that you didn't enjoy? I don't know. I, I think it's more, and I'm, I'm not saying it's the people, but it seems like it's the, the people to me. Mm-hmm. If there were no people there, I'd love Colorado. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I don't know how to explain it. It's not like I really had any bad experiences with people over there or anything, but I don't know. I just, for some reason, found it's just not quite the same. It. I went down to... Um, what is Durango, Mm -hmm. Durango, Colorado. And then I've been to, uh, Denver, obviously. And right outside of Denver, I'm trying to think of the town name, but Pueblo and, uh, Colorado Springs. Yeah. Though, like, like those areas. And I'm not saying the people are outright like rude, but there is a difference in like the welcoming feel. Like I think Colorado people are kind of like Colorado's our own outsiders, yeah. They're not as friendly to them. Yeah. Because um, I kind of got that in Durango because I'm like a social butterfly. Yeah. I talk to everybody. Yeah. And I swear, when you say Utah, they immediately associate you with Mormon and are you a polygamist? Right. <laughs> it's yeah. like, no, there's, I know we're a huge LDS culture, but there's more than just LDS people. And most of them right. don't practice polygamy yeah, anymore. It's, it's changing in my opinion to the better i mean i i don't think the religion should run the state or have control of it you know like you say all all your politicians they're all mormon lds and, and and everything and some of it some of the things are okay, but a, a whole lot of other stuff is not. No, I, I totally understand what you're saying. And and you're right. Most of the political spectrum in Utah is right-wing Republican and LDS. And whether or not someone, like, they can say that 
or the you know separation of church and state, but it's still going to influence their policies and decisions, right. their faith. Right. And right. so we do get a lot of that bleed over here. Um, so you went from driving big rig trucks for, you said like 20 years. Then did you go to like local driving? Yes. So like I said, I drove over the road for 20 years. And then when I came up here, I worked for that guy that I moved up here for. And I was still running over the road and they got bought out by another company and me and another guy, we didn't care for the company that bought us out pretty much. So he knew a guy up here that had a construction company and he went to work for him moving heavy equipment. And he was putting in like 90 hour weeks and he asked me, he said, you want to come drive over here with me? Mm-hmm. And I said, sure. So I went over there and he showed me how to operate equipment and stuff like that. And I was like, why didn't I do this sooner? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's, it's like, could you just drive it on, drive it off? Yeah. So you were like taking like bulldozers and things from different construction sites. Right. That's awesome. Heavy, heavy equipment's always really fun to kind of play around in and drive around. I had the pleasure I worked at Memorial Estate Cemetery so I got to drive some front end loaders and backhoes and stuff and then when I was really young my dad got in had a really good friend who worked for the Salt Lake County landfill and back then safety wasn't as huge exactly so the friend of his actually allowed me to come drive one of those d10 bulldozers around the dump for a little while and I was like maybe nine years old and like he sat in the cab with me but he let me control everything i was like this is so much fun i was like having the heyday of right. my life every time i crawl on a piece of equipment i just want to go tear stuff up yeah. <laughs> yeah and then i was uh i used to work at kennecott as an emt for a while and going up there i didn't get to run any of the equipment but i did get the pleasure of being on like the haul trucks and stuff. Yeah. And I was just like, I want to drive one of these, please just. Oh, I've, I've had the pleasure of driving a semi down there with the haul trucks coming up behind you. And trust me, all you're thinking is I want to get the hell out of your way. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Cause they really can't even see you. Yeah. I, uh, cause I would often, I worked at Lark gate, which is the yep. main access yep. gate to the mine. Yep. And I would, you know, uh, sign in drivers and stuff and then they'd come back down there like i thought i was the king of the road it's like yeah they're a lot larger up there aren't they everything it's amazing yeah and i when i was in arizona we used to go up to peabody coal mine which supplied the coal to the page power plant and the drag lines they had out there to dig the coal and things are so huge you know that you just can't even imagine you know so it's crazy. And the one sad thing that I see and I, I get technology is like, um, you can't escape it. Right. But I see in the near future, people not even driving these vehicles anymore, going over to like self-automated haul trucks. I don't know how soon so they, they've already got <clears throat> that. When, when the visitor center collapsed out there, when they had that, uh, slide landslide out there, they used remote controlled track hose and bulldozers to move to clear all that out because it was too dangerous to have an actual operator in it. So that 
they started that a good 10 years ago. Wow. So, yeah, you can, you can do it. Um, probably won't be too far down the road. And, and just from what I've noticed in the last few years, you know, even truck drivers, hiring truck drivers, they're not the same caliber anymore. They're, they just, sometimes you wonder, and, and I'm out there shaking my head going, I'm out here with these guys on the same road as these guys and they scare the hell out of me yeah i i think that um with like the caliber of people that are going into those driving jobs because to me truck driving and driving anything large used to be a really uh respected skill type job and now it's like they have so many openings they're almost hiring anyone who will just put in yes and you're getting the people that are unskilled at anything you know they don't they don't have education they're not going to college and stuff like that so they're just looking for anything and like these big trucking companies like swift and cr england and them they they train you for like a couple months throw you in the truck with a trainer who probably only has two three weeks experience driving anyways and then they're going down the road with no skill set and no idea what they're doing. You yeah. Know? And it's 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 scary. And even where I work now, the same thing. We're hiring guys right out of driving school, no training, nothing, and they just if you can't make a living like in technology, they don't want to do it. So they're lazy. They, they don't take the time and everything like that. And it just, I don't know where this industry is going to go in 20 years from now. But if it's heading where it is like right now, it's going to be really scary. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's like you said, you're, you get, <clears throat> excuse me, any Joe Schmo off the side of the road that just applies for the jobs. And then they don't, they look at the job as just a job you know they don't take as much pride and when you don't have people who take pride in their work they're not going to take pride in safety or any of those things yes and i work for one of the safest companies there is i mean that is drummed in to us daily i mean we have meetings constantly we have changes in policy constantly they don't want you to get hurt that's you or anybody else their top priority is to make it safe and they tell you we give you the time we don't care we don't want production over safety because if you have an incident it's going to end up costing them 10 times more than it would to do it right the first time even though it's going to take you longer to do it they would rather do that than have an incident because an incident will end up costing them millions Whereas you taking an extra 10 minutes to do it right will save them money. Well, that that is good that whatever company you're working for takes safety seriously. I won't throw out company names, um, but I did for a time go from the uh, school bus transportation into um, trash hauling residential. And I remember getting, I remember like two days of classroom and then it was put you in a truck with a trainer. And then the trainers did what I 
what I hate training like, and it was, okay, so this is the policies, but we're, this is the real stuff we do. And it was like, why aren't we following the policy? Well, we just can't do it that way. It's like, well, I don't want to be working for you if safety is not your first thing, you know? And so I didn't last very long in that uh, company to where I was like, you know what? This ain't for me. I want a company that is more solely on safety and not just the job needs to get done. Like I understand the job needs to get done, but you need to do it the right way where everyone goes home at the end of the night. I mean, mean back when I first started working clear up till I can go work for this company, it was, uh, they were, um, I, I worked for so many companies that, you know, the equipment they ran, just run it one more time, mm-hmm. you know, and, and whatever. And and we were driving. I, w- I, w- I would drive anywhere from 10 to 24 hours straight, you know, and you could get away with it back then. But when I came to work for the company I'm at now, their deal, they they started off, when I started with them, they, they were not like they are today. Mm-hmm. You know, you still get a little few sketchy things but for the most part their safety culture has always been it's not about getting it done it's about getting it done safely safely so they have policy you know see stop do you see something you stop you do so you have the the power there to shut the whole company down if you see something unsafe you know if you see somebody working without say a harness and they're 20 feet in the air no you stop them that's not what we do you put a harness on you know and and just stuff like that and i appreciate that because before nobody cared about my safety and now all of a sudden somebody did so you didn't have to do stuff that was going to get you hurt or get you killed and and if you felt like you're in a situation where something bad could go wrong call the boss supervisor and say I don't feel comfortable doing this and they will shut it down they will find a different way to do it whatever it takes but they they, they don't so you know they don't go well get in there and just get it done you know that's so that's so awesome that you ended up in one of those companies because there are so many companies that just cut corners and do anything they can because it's just about the bottom line the yeah. dollar yeah. and uh, that's one thing that really got instilled in my head up at Kennecott yes. was they have a whole culture of safety up there and everything. Like a lot of the people are like, oh, God, this is redundant and blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, but it gets you home at the end of the day. Yes. And and Kennecott, that's my company modeled their safety program after Kennecott. And because we're a contractor that goes out there and works out there, you have to have that safety culture. Otherwise, they won't even use you mm-hmm. yeah so you probably had to go through all the m shaw oh, training yeah. and all oh, that yeah. as well m shaw hazmat you name it that's awesome yeah so you recently though retired right yes how is retirement life treating you i wish i uh, uh, to tell you the truth i wish somebody would have put a camera in my hands 50 years ago because i probably <laughs> wouldn't have been a truck driver <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i mean how we came across each other is um, we both ran across each other at the Lee K Pond area. 
which this is a known area and an unknown area yes. at the same time because yes. everyone knows that area as being the landfill. Yes. You got waste management out yes. there. You got that construction landfill and then you got the Salt Lake County landfill. Yes. But tucked away just south of those is abundance of wildlife. Right. And uh, yeah, is I just stumbled upon Lee Kay after I started my photography. You know, I just stumbled on it one day and it was on the landfill road. And seeing those ponds over there and I'm seeing this guy drive around in there. You see cars driving. I'm outside the gate and I'm like, how do they get in there? And I stopped, talked to one guy and he's like, uh, well, you, you know, you can just go buy a pass and drive in there. And I'm like, what? Cool. <laughs> that's, that's the exact same thing. So me, I was doing the wandering around with my camera, walking around, and you were in your car. I was like, how do you get back here, man? Because, like, don't get me wrong. Walking in nature is cool. But sometimes, as you know, uh, doing wildlife photography, every type of photography has its own set of disciplines. And wildlife is you have to have patience. Yes. And to have patience in a nice warm car yes. is a lot easier than what I was doing, walking around yes. freezing. Yes. And that's when I was like, Grant, how do you how do you get back here? And you're like, oh, it's a $10 pass. I went right to the <laughs> Lee area, paid the fee, got the little app on my phone, and now I'm driving back there. Yeah, and it's, it's so much nicer because you go to an area... If you walk in, it's going to take you an hour or so to walk around the whole thing. And sure, you might see stuff, but it's like I sit in an area now where I, I see something, you know, I'll photograph it and it flies off. I move down the road a little bit, you know, instead of having to walk around. And I can sit there an hour. I can sit there 10 hours. Uh, there's there's times like like with the bald eagles when they fly in there bald eagles have nothing but time on their hands and you can sit there and watch them for an hour or 10 hours and they won't move but the minute you turn your head they are gone Dude, <laughs> so. i i i'm in the process right now of editing a video of the past three days out there and i literally one of my opening lines is my dumbass was messing around with my settings just to change my shutter speed, looked up, and the eagle was gone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was like, ah. I do that all the time. I'll get a couple photos of him, and then I'll go through my camera looking at the photos. I'll look up. He's gone. You know, and I'm like, when are you going to learn? <laughs> <laughs> so you've been shooting uh, photography for how long now? So <clears throat> this is the start of my third year. Um, so... My wife had a camera. She had a Rebel T100, I think. And it was sitting on her desk. And I'm like, do you ever use this? And she's like, yeah, sometimes, you know. And I'm like, well, I've never seen you use it. And I'm like, can I go play with it? And this was during the pandemic. But it wasn't the pandemic that got me started on it. I was just bored, you know. So I took it. And it had a... 75 to 300 millimeter lens i believe zoom lens and uh, so i went out in the backyard and started shooting the birds in the backyard and uh, i thought yeah this is pretty cool so i went in downloaded the photos and they were like crap photos and i'm like what the hell you know these aren't national geographic <laughs> so 
Anyhow, I did more research and found out the 75 to 300 lens. It's probably the worst lens Canon ever made. You know, the color aberration with it is horrible and everything. And the T100 is just basically a crap camera too. Yeah. But uh, so anyhow, I managed to talk her into getting me a better camera. So I went out and bought a RP Canon and then I bought the F11 uh, 800 lens, prime lens. And I think the first time I really used it, I went out to Bear River to go play around. That bird uh, area up yeah, there? Yeah, oh, okay. Bird refuge out there. Right on. So I'm out there and it's like February now, you know, and it is just so freaking cold out there and the wind's blowing. I have no gloves or anything, you know. I can see like 20 eagles like a mile away out on the ice. And I can see they're tearing something apart. And it was actually a, a swan. I could see them all, you know. And I'm thinking, cool. And I'm out there shooting away, you know. And it's like, get home and they're so far away. You can't even tell what they are, you know. So I've got like 500 photos and nothing so just because you can see them in the camera lens doesn't mean it's going to be a good photo that's you know? so true and I, I still do it occasionally you know but generally now i take a couple test shots and look at it and go yeah i ain't doing no more of those you know but uh, i still occasionally do it hoping you get one you know yeah that's so interesting your story is so similar to mine so I went through high school as a musician, played guitar, drums, keyboards, all that. And then right out of high school, you start losing connections with people. People get married, they move on. So being in bands was a lot more difficult. And I was like, man, I want a hobby that I can do on my own. And of course you can play guitar and stuff on your own, but it's always funner with people. But like, I need something that's going to get me out of the house, out and about. And my, uh, my ex-wife, but wife at the time, her father was a photographer and a really good one at that. And she had kind of dabbled in it, but she had a, uh, a Nikon. My, my father had actually bought her a Nikon D3100. And I was always just sitting on her desk in her office. And I was like, can I take this out and start shooting with this? And I, same thing. Photos were all just God awful. <laughs> I was playing around with, it was like the camera itself came with two lenses. One of them was that 75 to 300 range in there. And like you're saying, the the color aberration around everything was just like God awful. And I'm like, what am I doing wrong? Yeah. So I shelved it for a while and then I picked it back up and I actually decided, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to learn how to use this thing. And I'm going to do it in a way of that like you noticed when you came into my house, horror stuff all over the place. So I started doing like models and horror photography. And then it was about, you no, know, like eight to 10 years ago that I was like, you know what? I want to start like shooting wildlife and stuff. And that's when I got into that. And I'm here to tell you for you only shooting for, you say, this is your third year. You're damn good for three years. How did you um, go about learning the craft? So <laughs> When I first took the camera out, 
I had no clue there was anything called an exposure triangle. <laughs> so I go out there and it's totally black and I'm like, what the heck, you know? So I just started flipping dials and stuff until I eventually got some kind of light, you know? And I'm like, okay, you know? And then I'm like, all right, time for YouTube. Go watch some videos. Figured out what the exposure triangle was. Played around with it, you know, and, and kind of got to learn what it was and what it did. And, and so then I was able to go out and change it. But still not a pro out. It still didn't, you know, but, but as I was doing it more and more, I got to learn you want a high shutter speed for birds in flight. And you want to keep your ISO as low as possible, you know when possible you know i mean i'll go out shooting bad light and i can still get some good photos mm -hmm. you know so i i shoot all the time but uh yeah the clear skies blue skies that's optimal and it's great but you're not always going to get it you know so and then you going along and then pretty soon you're learning okay depth of field and and uh, bokeh and all this you know so watching more videos how do you get all this stuff you know so most of my knowledge came from youtube but most of my experience is just going out and doing it so i'd say probably the hardest thing to learn is you know for the birds in flight is how to set your camera up to where you know you you get that hunting where it doesn't want to focus and everything like that you know and so you just gotta generally i've got all my camera settings tweaked really good now so you know 30 out of 40 pictures come in you know really good that's good yeah i i, I probably a thousand photos probably 300 turn out blurry with 70% mm -hmm. keeper rate is that's good, that's really you know? good and and then you know so you throw out the blurry ones and then you got to throw out your your double you know ones and the ones that aren't exciting or whatever you know you you always kind of want some kind of action shot you know yeah so i mean i've got i've got 30,000 photos that I haven't edited and, and as you know, I have my wife come in and I, look at this one, look at this one. And she's like, blurry, <laughs> <laughs> delete. And I'm like, are you insane? And then it's like, nah, not good, not good, not good. And I'm like, tell you, I love every one of my photos. Even the blurry ones. I'm like, they're all my children, you know, and I hate to delete any of them. But you do start learning to call out to get the best ones that you have, you know. And But still, I, I've got thousands of good photos that are just in, you know, the hard drive. Yeah. You know, that I'll probably never even go in and look at. <laughs> that That's awesome that you um you were able to teach yourself using, like, online resources. YouTube is a godsend yes. for any yes. craft. Yes. Because there's so many people out there that have gone through the reading the manuals and doing it the old yes. school way. And then they just share your knowledge, their knowledge with you. Yes. That That's what I did too. Yes. YouTube was like a instrumental um, 
component in me being able to learn because I am not one of those people that learns by reading the manuals. I will read Uh, the manuals. The manuals to me are almost useless. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like reading a instruction manual kind of thing on how to take your car apart. (laughs) And And then it's like, it doesn't tell you how to fix it though. You know, like if, if you have an out of focus issue and, you know, it tells you kind of this is what this button does and this button does, but it doesn't tell you, well, if you tweak it this way, this is how it'll work. You know, and there, there's just so many thousands of combinations and stuff on, on a camera that you can use. Yeah. Um did you have a mentor? I When I started shooting photos, I did have a mentor, a guy at my work who, um, really interesting guy named Eric Popke. He recently moved over to Europe. Um, but he mentored me on like more composition and stuff because he was straight up a old school, you know, the dark room d- developing photos. So I couldn't rely on him for like the technical aspects but i did rely on him for teaching me like composition reading light stuff like that did you have any type of mentor where you just all self-taught no i'm pretty much self-taught but um i seem to learn light Uh, i can tell when it's good light bad light you always pretty much want the light behind you you know but uh I, I just kind of naturally, you could you could just by panning your camera, you could tell where the good light was and the bad light was. So I just generally kind of keep the light where I want it. As far as composition, kind of did the same thing when I started out. I, I know composition, and a lot of times with birds, you don't desi- decide where the background's going to be. They do, you know. So you can try and move a little bit and try and get a better shot of them and stuff like that. But as far as always being able to pick where you would prefer them to be, that's not going to happen. So I just, to me, if I see a bird, he's getting his picture taken, bottom (laughs) line, no matter when, where, or how, you know. And then after I look at it, if I can see, well, if I move over here a little bit, I think I can get a better angle and shot, then I will do it. That's awesome. What is it about the birds that does it for you versus because you obviously shoot a lot of different photos, but it seems like you are very, very into the birding photography. Yeah, because I I still work in, you know, the last couple of years and just finding the time to go out and do stuff. You know, Um, I do occasionally wander out and hope I find a deer or something like that. And occasionally I do, you know, but I've haven't actively really gone out looking you know and i know where birds are and i can find them anywhere Mm -hmm. you know and i'm always looking for a new bird you know um i think my life list is up to like 150 or something now of the different species of birds that you've shot and i I mean when i first started i didn't what's a bird you know i (laughs) seen an eagle here and there and that was about it that was my knowledge of birds and and then you go out there to these bird places and you're like there's 150 different species of ducks really you know i'd seen a mallard and that was about it so just seeing and learning their names and everything and, and and then started to watch them 
I discovered they're creatures of habit, just like people, pretty much. They will come back to the same area over and over and over again. I, I might go out there one day and not see them, but I know the next day it'd be back in that area again, you know. So I, a lot of times I'll go sit somewhere for 10 hours waiting for a harrier hawk to come by. He may come by, he may not, but eventually he will. So I do a lot of sitting in one, one place, just hoping for that shot. And, and when you get that shot, you get such a thrill. It's just like, yeah, nailed it. You know, but then after that, the next time it's like, how do I top this? How do I get another better one? How do I get another better one? So I'm always trying to improve and learn different techniques and stuff like that. But it's, yeah, it's, it's a, the challenge, I guess, is what I love. Of the birding yeah. photography? Yeah. Man, and I, I'm here to tell you, I'm hunting that shot that I seen you do recently because all of my eagle shots are perched. I have a few in flight, but not many. But you got one the other day or whenever you got it that I seen on your Facebook of those eagles devouring a seagull. Yes, yes. And now I'm like yes. like you. I'm sitting out there just waiting for that shot. Yes, yes. and it's, it's like such a once-in-a-lifetime and and you just want to nail it and that was, that was fairly bad light that day too but but they turned out really pretty good oh they turned out awesome i mean because like all the elements have to add up for you right then and that's where your patience and not a lot of people have that especially because, I mean, even in landscape photography, you got to be patient because nine times out of ten, the perfect sunset's going to come when you're in the freaking right. parking lot at Smith. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And you're going to get power lines and everything else. And you're like, yeah. I, yeah. So there's there's times I will see the clouds and stuff like that and the sun going down. I'm going, okay, great sunset, hopefully, you know, and blah, nothing. And then the next day you go out there and you, eh, I'm going home. And you take off and on the way home, you see this gorgeous sunset. Yes, <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Uh, have you always been a pretty patient individual your whole life? Well, because truck driving, you sit for hours on end. Over the road, you sit at warehouses, you sit at truck stops. So, yeah, I've always... You know, when I was over the road, I did a lot of reading and stuff like that and stuff like that. But I've always, it's kind of a lonely job. You know, you're not, it's not like you're working with 50 people. It's you. That's it. So whatever it took to keep you entertained. But I, yeah, I always sat for hours on on end. So doing this is no different. Um, it is a bit disappointing when you sit there for 10 hours and get nothing, you know, but Every day I go out, I'm going to get at least one good photo. Yeah, and you're dedicated because yeah. I have seen you out there now three or four times. I'm like, man, this guy, he he has the dedication and the patience that it takes to obviously capture the amazing photos that you do. And not a lot of people have that with, with wildlife. Yeah, and, and I see people go out there all the time that drive and stop, drive and stop, drive and stop. And it's like, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at something really fantastic as you're driving by that you didn't even notice. 
Yeah, it, it's it's funny because I will get uh, my friends at work and stuff, and they'll be like, "How? Where did you? See? I've never even seen a bald eagle in Utah." And I'm like, "They're all over the place. You just need to." I call them your looky loose. You just got to use your eyes. Yes. And so many people going out to that landfill, they probably don't even know perched up there on those. Exactly. Yep. Are exactly. those bald eagles, those exactly. amazing animals. And then all the, I mean, like you said, there's so many other birds out there that you just have to use your eyes, be patient and almost wait for them to come to you. Yeah. And they, they do most of the time. Uh, there's uh... I've gone out to like Farmington Bay and sat on the paved road out there looking at the, and I've had herons come so close to me, I could reach out the window, grab them by the neck, and they don't care, you know. Um, a lot a lot of birds get really skittish, you know, and you come up and boom, they're gone, you know. But there are a lot that will sit there. And, and especially if you sit in your car, because they kind of know that cars ain't going to hurt them. So you just step out the car, boom, they're gone, you know. So it, it's just, I just sit there and watch and learn whatever. And it's like right now there's cattle grits out there. There were seven of them. Uh, but the first time I saw them, they come and landed right in front of my car. Wow. Ten feet away. And I'm like, Really? And so I started, just kept hanging around, hanging around, and it's like every morning, every afternoon, whatever, they would all come fly and land right next to my car, you know, two feet outside the door. I'd sit there and talk to them. They, they wouldn't move, you know. And, and during the winter here, I don't know why they're still here, but you could see them out there just shivering, you know, from the cold and the wind. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys can come in the car if you want. You know? <laughs> they never did. I did have one land on the roof of the car, but I couldn't get a photo of it, you know. Ah, that that's that's so interesting. And um, you know so much about birds. I know my my basic, but like the one you just said, a cattley. I don't even know what the hell that is. And and, and it's a tiny bird. It, it's. No, it's smaller than a seagull, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't know that. I thought they were larger. I thought they were two, three foot tall. But no, they're only about a foot tall. I think they're 16 to 18 inches tall, something like that, 14 to 18, which isn't very tall. And you don't notice that till they're standing two feet away from you. And you're like, these guys are freaking tiny. Yeah. Do you, when... When you've been out shooting these birds and everything, what is your favorite bird to photograph right now, so, currently? I love raptors. They're my favorite. So, you know, eagles, hawks, uh, kestrel hawks, they're amazing. They're so freaking beautiful. You know, they're, they're probably about one of the most beautiful birds there are. And watching them and shooting them, you know, because they, they sit there and hover and whatever. And, and they're always, they're deadly little mice catchers. They, they dive on that mouse, bring it up, and next thing you know, he's perched on a bush, you know, 50 feet away or even closer, just ripping that mouse to shreds. Yeah. I mean, they're just brutal. They're deadly, but they're so gorgeous. Um, I, there were some owls that I saw somewhere, and uh, 
I spent probably, I'd say easily a couple hundred hours just sitting there watching them. And I, I could see where their lookout bushes were and stuff like that, and they'd fly to them and everything, you know. And then I got, there was a family of them there. I think there were seven of them overall. And it was usually one or two would come flying out, you know, trading look off. And, and the other would s sit on the burrow all day, you know. So then I kept doing that, doing that, and eventually... All seven of them came out. All seven of them came out and landed on a bush, and I was catching them flying up and down off the bush and flying around and everything. And I never tried to approach them, to, you know, to encroach on their, their territory. So I was sitting on the road doing this, and it's almost just out of camera range, you know. It's just right on the verge of not being able to get good shots of them, but I was getting amazing shots of them. And I sat there every day. I, I'd go out there 7 in the morning and sit to 5 o'clock at night, 6 o'clock at night. And I did this for a couple weeks. And eventually, I, I would notice where they would go when they'd fly off and stuff. So I'd start parking there and everything. And I was able to catch them closer and closer. And there was one bush they had right next to the road. And I could drive up to that bush, and that thing would be sitting right there 10 feet away. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, and it wouldn't move. They used to fly off, you know, but I think they got so used to me sitting out there that they realized I was in a threat. So then I'd pull alongside the bush, I'd snap off a few shots and drive off. And I did that a few times, and then it got to the point where I could pull up alongside that bush and they wouldn't fly off, and I could sit there and snap a hundred pictures, and they didn't care. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I recently we um, were out at Antelope Island, and we caught some ground burrowing owls. And same thing. I was actually really amazed at how not skittish the owl is. They're more just inquisitive, like who are you? But like other birds like sparrows and things they seem to be more skittish yeah. but those owls that we caught were ground burrowing i would say i probably got within 50 feet of them and they were just like hello you know yeah. but it, and again people were just driving by would never notice them yeah. and i'm like these little things are awesome yeah i'm going to wake up my dog real quick <laughs> he is snoring in the background and everyone's going to be like what the heck um but as i'm doing that is there a bird that's on your list that you haven't captured yet that is just your creme de la creme, like, I need to get um, this? There are, there are a few of the smaller birds. I can't even think of their name right now. Uh, uh, one's a kind of a bluebird. It's not a mountain bluebird or anything like that, but it is a blue-like Oriole-type thing, you know. I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but... Yeah, there are a few like that that I love capturing, and I've, uh, I mean, like, uh, oh, there's a couple of orange ones out here that that I've gotten, and uh, uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of the names of some of them. Um, Is there any animal out there right now that you're really hunting to get a shot of? No, but I would love to do like a bear, mountain lion, 
Xbox, you know, things of those lines. Uh, oh, yeah. Lynx, Bobcat, stuff I, like that. I have only encountered a mountain lion once and this was before i was really deep into photography and that's one of the animals i really want to capture but they're so elusive in the time i locked eyes with a mountain lion i was working at kennecott and i was out there and i don't know if you're from well you are because you said you've been up there so you go through lark gate and they have that safety board as you enter the mine i was changing the numbers on there and all of a sudden, from my peripheral vision, I seen this thing come darting out of the bush and then like get really low in the road. And I like locked eyes. I was like, that's a freaking mountain lion. And me being stupid and naive, I did the thing you shouldn't have done. And I just booked it back to the guard shed. Right. <laughs> I'm like, this thing could have easily picked me off and taken me and had a, you know, a midnight snack. Yeah, but I'm, that would be... That's awesome when you just come up on something like that. My heart was just like racing, but I would love, I would love to photograph mountain lions. I really want to get out there and photograph bears, but they're also very frightening too. Right, right. Like I can't, I used to uh, work on movie sets as an EMT as well. And we, uh, I had the pleasure of working. I don't know if you're familiar with, but there's this really famous bear, Bart the Bear. He was, he was in a ton of movies and they brought him on this yeah. movie set. We were uh, shooting and the producer was like, you ever uh, respond to a medical emergency with a uh, bear attack? And I was like, nope. And if that bear attacks anyone, I'm not responding to that either because I'm going to be hightailing it that way. Yeah. But yeah, bears, I think, would be an amazing animal to capture. Um, but so far out of all the wildlife I've done birding has always been the most it just gets my blood pumping you're you're always going to get birds Mm -hmm. no matter what no matter where you go they're everywhere it might just be a sparrow but it might be an eagle you just never know and and that's part of the fun of it is and, and I, if it's a sparrow, I, I still will take its picture if it's on the right bush and the right light and everything because to me, they're all good looking, you know, and they all have their own little behaviors, you know, songs, you know, like the, the mock, uh, not the mockingbird, the meadowlark, western meadowlark, you know, it's got that very yellow breast and throat and everything, and when they sing, you know, and I, I've got thousands of pictures of them, but it, still, when I see one, you know, if he's in the right light and everything, yeah, I'll, I'll take pictures of him. Yeah, that that's awesome. I I think I got a picture of a metal arc just not too long ago. And then it's funny you say sparrows. I have a love-hate with sparrows because I try to treat all wildlife respectfully. But those damn sparrows love coming to my home and stealing my chicken feed. Right. I will get... I kid you not in my backyard because I have I have 10 chickens currently and they you can't do anything to keep them out of the feed. Yeah. It's like and they don't care. Like I've tried the uh, those little um, they sell them at like IFA and stuff. The decoys like yeah. the owls and yeah. stuff yeah. after um, like two days they're like that thing's not real right. and they just come in. So that's my love hate with the sparrows is like oh you little thieves you cost me a lot of money because. I get hundreds of them in my backyard, but every once in a while I'll sit out on my deck and I'll shoot pictures of the sparrows. And when you get them in the right like position, they can also be a very interesting bird photograph. Yeah. And same thing with uh, uh, the starlings. 
you know, they're a nuisance bird, whatever, you know, but if you catch them in the right light, the colors on them things are amazing. Oh yeah. Especially in their chest. Yeah. They have this like really fluorescence kind of colors to them. Mm-hmm. Bright that, light. They, they, they're amazing. Yeah. They, they're just and shiny. They're really shiny yeah. too, which is also captivating in their own right. Is there, um, a area in Utah that you enjoy the most to do your birding at, or is it that Lee K ponds area? Lee K ponds right now, but Lee K closed there for a couple months. Uh, they had some dogs die out there, but anyway, the algae blooms. Huh? Yeah. yeah. So I went out to, uh, I started looking around for other places. I'd walk along Jordan river, you know, pick a location, walk a mile of that one day and then go another one the other day. But then I found uh, Adams Pond, which I'm sure you must know because you walk the Adams Trail. Mm-hmm. So I went down to Adams Pond there for a couple of days, and I was freaking amazed. I did not realize there were that many birds back there. And you walk back into like the forested area, and, and there was just tons of them, you know, that I had never seen and stuff like that. And it was, yeah, it was an amazing place to go. Have you ever been on that back end area of the landfill, that 7,200 uh, west exit off I-80? And they have that big open field out there. Do you ever go out there? I don't. That's a really good area for birds of prey. You got your your falcons, your eagles and stuff that go out there. But it's also a sketchy area too. Yeah. Because you do get... In photography, a lot of the time with wildlife, you're out in the middle of nowhere. And this is like a middle of nowhere. Yes. Air quotes place. And I ran into a very weird situation back there a couple years ago. And it's kind of a funny story. But so I get off the I-80 exit. And I've told this story on the podcast before, but I'm going to tell it again just to tell it to you. And so I-80, 7200 West, get out. Mm-hmm. get off on that exit and i'm always going out there to capture again birds and wildlife that are out there because it's just an open field yes. with nothing around no reason for anybody to be out there ever for any reason but but either yes. photographing or maybe the farmers that own the land right. but i get off this exit and i know this this truck following me and i'm like okay this is kind of odd you know i don't usually run into people and I pull off on the little frontage road and I notice all of these cars lined yes. up. There was like yes. probably 10 of them. Yes. And they're all spaced apart and they're all occupied by one yes. male each. Yes. And I go to this little turnaround. This truck follows me and it stops in the turnaround and I keep, I drive a little out of it. And the guy gets out of his truck and I notice all the other people in their vehicles get these binoculars up. I'm like, what is this? Like a birding heyday out here something you're the little chickadee <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh i look in my rear view mirror and the guy in the truck that was following me gets out exposes himself and starts just masturbating yes. in front of everybody i hightail it out of there and i run into some officers down the road a little ways and i tell this story to them they're like oh yeah you ran into the i guess there's this 
closeted gay hookup area. Yes. I've heard it called the gay bar. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, wow. And it was a detective I was talking to. He was just like plain clothes detective. He was just like, yeah, you were in the right place at the wrong time for you. And I was like, Oh God. (laughs) I mean, there's how they figured out this is a hookup spot and where you go to look to find this is a hookup spot. I don't know, but yeah, the, the railroad track runs right underneath there. Mm -hmm. And we used to deliver equipment to the railroad track and same thing, you know, get down there where you're supposed to unload and every guy's all over the place. And you're like, uh no, no <laughs> yeah and it's not like i, I don't have any uh, against gay people or any other people to tell you the truth do, you know do what you want yeah as long as you know it doesn't affect me i'm okay with whatever you do no and i i, I could care less as well uh, but i was just like so yeah, shocked you, you don't expect I, it out there yeah yeah There's i nothing was like, out there there's no reason to be out there you know and, and then to find that out. But yeah, then you go looking around at all the trash down there, find dirty underwear and stuff yep. in the garbage out there. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've walked up and down that road and this is one thing that does drive me nuts about some of these areas is people are so disrespectful of open space. Yeah. It's like whenever I go out to the West desert, cause I do a lot of recreational shooting. When I go out, I pick up all my brass if I'm shooting clay pigeons, anything, I pick up all my garbage yeah. and people just leave trash yeah. everywhere. It's, it's just, it's one of the things I hate the worst. It's same with along Lee K. Instead of taking your stuff to the landfill, they will do it on the frontage road along Lee K and just throw out mattresses and tons of garbage and everything else. And I, I hate those people with a passion. To me, they're useless and worthless to do that. It's your trash. Take it to the landfill. Ten bucks. Big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Because I just barely recycled a mattress like last year. And because I I would always see mattresses out there. I'm like, God, is it really that much money to get rid of a mattress? It's $10. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And and you see bags of trash. Go find a dumpster somewhere. Mm Mm-hmm. Don't throw it on the road out there. Don't throw it in. This is a bird habitat. Don't yeah. throw it in there, polluting their stuff. Yeah, no kidding. Because And then a lot of those birds, they'll end up going. I mean, they the dump's right there. So the seagulls and stuff yeah, are going to yeah, go eat the trash yeah. anyways. But yeah. other birds, other animals, they can eat those toxic things. And then yeah. there you go. You end up with dead birds, dead animals and stuff like that. I've seen hypodermic needles out there. There's no need for it. This this one time I was actually walking up to Copperton, Utah, and I I didn't have my camera with me. I was just going on one of those walks to clear my head, and I'm walking up before it became a very busy road. Uh, what was the name of it? Ninetieth um, South, how it just goes up there. Yeah, yeah. And I found all these hypodermic needles, and I used to live in the apartments that were kind of the only things out there. So my kids are around here, so I picked them up because I wanted to throw them away. But I'm on this walk and I'm like, well, I can't just chuck them. So I'm carrying them with me and a storm rolled in and this really nice guy pulls over to the side of the road and he's like, Hey, you need a lift? Where are you going? I'm like, I'm just going to Copperton, but yeah, I'd appreciate a lift. And I get in and I forget that I have like seven hyperdermic needles in my hand <laughs> and I sit down and he looks over at me. He's like, 
yo, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I'm like, I am literally going to throw these in the trash. He's like, are you sure, buddy? I'm like, yes, yes. Not, I'm, not a user. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. yeah, it's like just. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I've gone out to like Eureka, Utah, you know, up in the mining and gone on the four wheel trails and stuff up there. Garbage everywhere. Yeah. It's like people clean I mean, this is it's, your land. It's like, go find a dumpster. What's the matter with you? Yeah. You it's, it amazes me the amount of trash that gets left out everywhere these days. And I don't know how you, I don't think you can solve that. I mean, the, it's like you said, you don't need like a public awareness message or anything for this. It's just people are lazy inherently yeah. and they just. They, they don't want to pay 10 bucks, whatever, you know? Yeah. It's, and it's, I'm, it's your, your trash, you know, you're, you're going out and buying stuff with your money. Budget $10 to go to the landfill. Yeah, or throw it in your garbage can yeah. at your house. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of it's trash bags full of papers and stuff like that. No need to throw it on the road. Yeah, no kidding. And then, because I, um, I don't do very much of this because with my job, I try to be as much of a law-abiding citizen as I can because I can't have anything on my record you know i work in education so i got to be very careful but i have done some like abandoned photography of some of these old homes oh, and yeah. stuff i absolutely love the history of these buildings i love capturing different angles of them and then you get inside and they're just littered with graffiti right. trash and it's usually from the kids and stuff but i'm like at least if you're going to graffiti this wall let's be a little artistic and not just draw the you know the one i've seen everywhere the giant cartoon dick or yeah, the fuck yeah. this yeah you know and it's like come on le- learn how to spell yeah it was it was the same thing when i was driving over the road you'd go into any public restroom and walk into any stall and there's writing all over it and the problem is most of these guys can't even spell three-letter words correctly yeah you know at least learn how to spell that, you know, if you're going to do it. And it just makes you wonder, you're doing this to a restroom, you know, in a restaurant or a gas station or whatever. What does your bathroom at home look like? Totally. It's, I mean, and you've probably been to a plethora of these nasty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, when we went back East, me and my friend Riley, um, we did it because we're not rich, either one of us. So we did it on a very kind of strict budget. And I remember our first hotel that we stayed in was in Cheyenne, Wyoming at the Roadway Inn. And we got in that room and I was just like, what did we just come into? I think this is just a hookup room. <laughs> right. And I'm not trying to disparage truck drivers or anything, but it was just a lot full of, you know, trucks and... I just was like, no, I mean, there's, there's urine bottles all over the place and stuff like this. It's disgusting. Go, go find a trash can at minimum and put it in there. Don't just throw it out on the side of the road, you know? And it's just, and in your days as a truck driver, CB radios were probably huge. Yes. Did you get a lot of that, like CB talk, like just nastiness on that as well? Yes. It started really becoming bad, uh, before I started doing local. Yeah, it just, you couldn't stand to be on the radio anymore. It was just full of people, you know, trying to be like keyboard warriors now on the internet. You know, oh, same yeah. Thing. 
Yeah, I can only imagine. Now, one question I do have for you, getting a little away from photography, but into the trucking lifestyle, lot lizards or yes. quote unquote yes. like yes. prostitution, yes. is that a thing or yeah. is that something yeah. that the it general is. public? It is. No, it, it is. Generally, it's more your sketchier, like when you get to sketchier towns and stuff like that. And you have the older rundown truck stuff, stuff like that is where they run. You run into, into them. them. But yeah, it's kind of like, no, you don't want to touch that because you don't know what they got. Especially back then. Oh, yeah. Back then when AIDS was coming out and all and other diseases. So it's like, yeah, no thanks. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's crazy. I um, When I used to be just a driver we would uh, park downtown. So there's, I don't know if you're familiar with the downtown area, but you know where the Clark Planetarium is yeah. off of first South yep. and like whatever. Yeah. Um, they, they had a designated area for us. We would drop the kids off up front and then we would park down by the old uh, railroad yard. And before they did that operation Rio Grande, where they cleaned that mm-hmm. tried their yeah. best to clean that all up. I was propositioned for sex on my bus, <laughs> drugs. I watched people get beat up for bad drug deals. And I'm just like, some areas you really got to watch yourself. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it can get really scary if you go down there around 4 South and in that area. It's, um, but you feel bad for those people. Most of them mental health issues. Most of them are homeless, maybe through no fall to their own, lose their job, lose their house, divorce, you name it. Um, but a whole lot of mental health issues. So, I mean, occasionally, if I've got extra money and stuff like that, yeah, I'll go out and buy a bag of hamburgers and hand it out to them and stuff like that. But generally, as far as just giving them money and stuff, no, because, you know. You know where it's going to go. Yeah. So, but you feel bad for them. And you think there should be more done to solve this, you know, and it's like, I, I read an article where KSL said, yeah, you know, you know, the city said, yeah, we got rid of our homeless problem, you know, no, you didn't, you kicked them out and moved them to a different area, mm-hmm. okay, so now they're no longer by the railroad station, but you go two blocks farther west, and there you got another homeless camp now, yeah, and, and now it's getting really bad because you have all these people buying those old motor homes and they just get left and dumped because they don't run anymore and they, they, they park all along these streets and things like that and just leave them there and, and eventually they get towed away. But you can go to a wrecking yard and find 10,000 motor homes in there now. Yeah, it's so true. I can't... Um... I never try to judge anyone that's homeless. I mean, we all have our little predispositions to have a little bit of judgment. and But I always try to come from a place of understanding. One thing that I used to do is I would go down there and photograph homeless people yeah. and talk with them. Yeah. And there's so many stories I would hear from these people. And it always just came back to me, myself, being humbled. Like, I could be here. Exactly. In the instant, just with you people, I have something happen with my health where I can't do my career anymore. And I've spent so long in that field where 
I'm not going to make the money I make there. So I could be homeless just like you. So I always try to not judge, but you're also right. A lot of the people that I've talked to, interacted with, and just generally you can see it. Mental health is a huge yes, thing. Yes. It's, it's a massive uh, problem within the homeless communities. Like you say, they literally have encampments and yeah. stuff. And I know a lot of people, I, I worked for the health department for a stint as well. I've, I had so many freaking jobs over my years of employment, but we would go down and do like those um, homeless camp cleanups, mm-hmm. the ones that you always get in the news articles and you read the comments of you bastards, you doing yeah. this. It's like, I don't think you guys realize the health hazard this not only to yeah, them so presents. I, I mean you got to realize that they're urinating and defecating on the streets you know and they're they're leaving their needles and everything else and especially you know with families like when you go to these parks like liberty park and stuff like that you can't go there mm-hmm. you know because of the homeless people and, and it can become quite scary because yeah i've seen a whole lot of fights break out and stuff like that you know and it's uh it can be really intimidating, especially to a family, you know. So, you know, there has to be some kind of situation. You, you know, you see all these abandoned buildings, you know, like Kmart, stuff like that. Set one of those up as a shelter, mm-hmm. you know, where these people can go and get a meal and, and, and stuff like that. You know, and I know we act like we don't have the resources, you know, to, to pay for all this, but it's costing you just as much with them out on the street. Yeah. You know, and then you have the crime and everything else, you know, these people got nothing. So they're breaking into your houses, you know, and, and that, and along with the drug use and everything, you, I mean, you go out there and you watch those people just standing in a stupor, Mm-hmm. Because they're they're so cracked up on whatever it whatever. is, yeah, you know, yeah. And I don't mean to get political, but I always question. I'm like, okay, so because you'll hear we don't have the money for it, and then I'm like, yeah, we have all this money to throw to foreign wars and stuff, yeah, yeah. but we can't spend a little bit more money to help our infrastructure here, help out our veterans, help out some of these people. Because, I mean, even with health insurance, um, you read a, a, a post of mine the other day. I, I get seasonal depression really bad. Yeah. And even me, having health insurance through the state of Utah, okay, that covers doctor visits, but the mental health aspect, it doesn't cover it very well. Yeah. And so then your out-of-pocket expenses are through the roof. So I can only imagine what that's like for people in... Uh, dire straits with money problems and things who are suffering from health, uh, mental health problems. It's yeah, just... and it's it's sad because you know I've I've known a lot of people with mental health issues. And I've known people that committed suicide. Um, my best friend in high school when I was growing up, he killed himself. I had no idea. I had no idea he was depressive. But yet he was doing all kinds of things. Like he'd go out and wreck a car, roll it over and let over. I thought it was an accident. No, he was doing this on purpose. Wow. You know, so I, funniest guy, and it always seems like the funniest, happiest people are the ones, you know, like Robin Williams and all them, you know, they've, they've got everything. 
but apparently they don't have happiness, which is one thing you can't buy, you know, and, and it just, yeah, so he killed himself, uh, 25-ish, I guess, but I had no idea. Yeah. I talked to him like the day before he shot himself in the head and killed himself. Talked to him like the day before, didn't have any idea. Yeah, it, it's it literally amazes me. Just like you said, Robin Williams, one of the funniest people that of our time, ended up committing suicide because he struggled with. Yeah, look at Anthony Bourdain, mm-hmm. you know, and and all all the other ones. It's, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Mental health is a issue to everybody. You yourself, um, you're how old? I'm 66. 66. Have you come to, because you're recently retired, you said Thanksgiving was your last day at your yeah, yeah. Uh, place of employment. And now you're, are you full-time retired? Or are you still doing kind of some side work? Uh, I'm like working a day or two here and there, uh, just kind of help them out. And uh, actually to get into January, which I am now, and collect my benefits and then I can leave. Gotcha. So, but, uh, you know, I might still help them out a day or two here and there, you know, if they get in a bind. But for the most part, yeah. Now, did that bring any, like, depression to you leaving the workforce? Or are you just... No. I am so happy. <laughs> I wish I could have done this 50 years ago, brother. Dude, that that's awesome. I notice a huge stark di- difference between you and some other people I know. For instance, my father. He fully retired at 60, he was 64 when he fully retired. He, he planned for retirement, but through decisions of his and my mother's lost their retirements, trying to save homes, things like that. So he's just fully retired on social security. That's all he's got, but he still has a roof over his head and he is in such a depressive state and he doesn't do anything and then i look at you who's retired but you have hobbies and one of your hobbies being photography gets you out there and you realize that i think so many people work becomes their identity that when they walk away from that they feel like they lose something but it's nice to see like you're just happy to be out there doing things you love yes and and the last year of working I considered that my side job and bird photography was my real job (laughs) and I just it's photography has really become my passion in life and I wish I would have discovered it a lot earlier I really do I think I would have been on a different trajectory Um, last 50 years I was working anywhere from 40 to 80 90 hours a week every week that was my life, was working. That was it. Had no other hobbies, you know, uh, because the job was so full-time. You didn't have time to go play community softball. Didn't have time to join a bowling league or anything else because you have no set schedule, you know. You don't know if you're going to work eight hours or 15 hours, you know. Uh, so if you made plans, it was like good luck keeping them. And I mean, even uh, going to my, trying to make it to my daughter's birthday every year down in Albuquerque, 
I would plan for it every year, but it didn't always happen. So, yeah, the, the work just became, and I, and I enjoy what I do. You know, I enjoy truck driving immensely, but you have no other life. Yeah, no, it's a, that's a reoccurring theme because I get a lot of uh, retired truck drivers and things like that that will come drive school bus just to stay busy and kind of supplement their retirement yeah. income because a lot of people don't plan for retirement. So they get there, they get that social security, and then they realize that doesn't go very far, especially yeah. in now yeah. uh, the economy we have. And, but, um, they always say that they wish they would have spent more time focusing on their life and less time on work, which is so hard to balance when we need money to survive. Right. Is there a bit of advice you would give for anyone in the younger generations coming up that you've learned over your years? Um, I mean, I was raised kind of that old school, you know, you, you had to go out and work. You know, I started working when I was 12. Um, even, you know, when I was in school, I had a part-time job, but I was always too, like I was working for my, uh, with my dad and, and it was like, you were always expected to do more. So, you know, if somebody didn't show up for work. Now you're working a double shift or whatever. So you, you always did that but I always took pride in what I did and I, I tried to do a good job but whatever I did I gave my best effort you know so it was just kind of like that old school but it's like now if you can't do it on your iPhone people don't want to do it you know I want to sit at home and play on my iPhone or a computer or whatever which is great I wish I could too I'd probably be bored silly with it but but uh I, I, I think that ethic of wanting to work anymore is not really there. I think it's what can I do? You know, become a YouTube influencer and make a hundred thousand a year? Why not? You know, just like kids in the ghetto. You know, I can make a hundred thousand dollars selling drugs. Why not? You know, that's the easy way. It might not be the best or smartest way, but. I, I really don't begrudge these kids nowadays. If they can go out and make a bunch of money by not having to work, great. You know, I would have loved to have done that too. You know, go out and uh, just travel around and do stuff, you know, and make money off of it. Sure, that'd be great. But uh, I wasn't raised that way. And, and by the time this stuff started coming out, the influencer stuff, I'm like, you know, already past that age anyways. Um, I do hope at some point that I can sell some of my photographs, you know, and I'm, I'm in the process of putting together a website, but I don't expect to make a living off of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, I, I think you're very right. The, um, the idea, f especially in people around my age and younger, I'm 33 myself, but I do see this a lot, is... A lot of people, and like I have a YouTube channel. I do this podcast. I do my photography. I'm very real in my thought process. I do it because I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I sell photos here and there. I don't make nothing from my YouTube channel. My podcast is just because I love talking to interesting individuals and want to share their stories. But 
a lot of the like high school age kids that I'll drive around or junior high kids, you get talking with them and so many of them are caught up in the social media aspect and they just want to be that influencer or, you know, something along those lines. I don't want to say it's easy money because it's actually really hard to make money from that. But I just hope that they also understand that that is super difficult and there are other avenues to make money. Yeah. And, but in saying that you're right, it's the work ethic and not even, not even with the younger people. Cause I see it in older people too. Work ethic is just not there. Like it used to be. Yeah, It's kind of gone to the wayside. Now, I like, I don't believe in selling your soul to your workplace, but I'm the same way. I work 10 and a half hours a day, Monday through Friday. And I still make time for what's important to me. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a strange time that we're living in because you have people who are coming into unemployment due to technology. Then you got people who would rather just sit home and for lack of a better term, milk the system or whatever, make money that way. Um, my mother was kind of like that in all honesty, she got on social security disability at a very young age. She was four in her forties and not saying that she didn't deserve it because she did get diagnosed with a, um, neurological disease and I'm not in her shoes, but I always thought to me, I was like, I got to have some other purpose than just cause she just survived off that forever and still right. does. And Right now, I, I I don't know how much time I have left. Might be a year, might be 10 years, might be 20. I have no clue. You know, you never know when you're going to die. But that's why I'm trying to make the most of it right now. And that's why my whole day is dedicated to doing this. You know, just like, like it was my job. It is my job, except now I'm excited about my job. Whereas before, sure, I liked doing what I did. It was fun driving trucks, driving equipment and stuff. But, but it was a lot of hard work, too, mm-hmm. you know. And to me, if if you don't enjoy what you're doing, then it is work. Yeah. You know. And life's too short to not enjoy yourself. So now I'm taking that time, and I'm loving every minute of it. That's awesome. What's your uh, What's your wife? Because you're you're married, right? Yes. What's your wife think of your uh, deep dive into she photography? Loves, she loves it. She is just totally stoked that I found this. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Does Does she do uh, any hobbies or she's, anything herself? She does. She's an artist, painter, writer. Oh, she, really? She wrote a memoir of her life before, and uh, yeah, she's had quite a fascinating little life. Um, but yeah, she, uh, she's artistic, loves the arts, uh, very, very good person. I mean, she's just the nicest person in the world. You know, she just, uh, um, loves life and loves to, to live it. But again, she also, like you, has bouts of depression, you know, and so she will get depressed, and I'm the one that has to try and buck her up and pull it out of it, mm-hmm. you know. But but yeah, she she gets to the point where what's it all about? Yeah, you know. 
yeah, I always, my hat's off to you people who are in relationships with people like us who can go through those uh, very depressive states because I don't think people realize how taxing it can be on you guys that have to deal with our, our, yes, our mental states. Yes. And, and I get it's a real issue, but it's hard for people like me to comprehend that when I'm not like that kind of, you know, I, I, I don't have ideations of suicide or anything like that. So it's hard for me to comprehend why somebody would want to do that. And I don't know that it's so much you want to do that. I think it's just, you know, how your mind works, you know, and the mind's a, a very amazing and difficult thing to fi- figure out. And everybody's thoughts are different. And, and, you know, and so even if, I don't know, if if you knew I cared about you, how does that change what you're thinking in your own head? You, you kind of can't control a lot of times what you're thinking or feeling. And, and when things start looking bleak and whatever, and you think your only answer is to kill yourself, to me that's really sad. But I, I don't know that because to me the way I look at it, if I'm here a hundred and twenty years at best, that's a minuscule amount of time. That is minuscule. It's like a grain of sand on the beach. That's how long you're gonna be here, you know? And and it's just to me, I want to live the whole thing to figure out if there is something on the other side or not. If there is great, if there's not, what have I lost? Mm-hmm. But but to take your own life and end that to me seems like you're cutting yourself short and everything else. But depressive people don't always look at it like that. They they just see no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Yeah. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? You know. How long have you and your wife been married now? Um, thirteen years, I believe. Oh, that's awesome. That's that's. I mean, you, so you were in your 50, 40, late 40s, early 50s when you met your wife? 66, 56, 53. 53? How did you guys meet? Um, on the internet. Really? Yeah. That's cool. Um, I was actually at the time, I had a YouTube channel. I think it's still up. I just don't use it. <laughs> uh, but I was making truck driving videos. Oh, dude, that's awesome. Yeah. So I had a camera, you know, on the dashboard and I just film stuff going down the road and whatever and generally I'd play a soundtrack behind it and uh, she's from uh, Canada so she she's born in Nova Scotia but she was living at in Montreal at the time and she had just come down to the states on a little trip you know for a couple weeks and she had to go back and when she got back home she was like just really missing the traveling in the united states and everything so she started looking at youtube videos and she found this truck driving community where these truckers were making videos and she started watching them and then she saw mine she started making comments on my videos and like like i said I, i didn't do a lot of talking but the song was what i was trying to portray and she picked up on that. 
So then uh, we just started uh, Skyping and stuff like that. And we Skyped for about a year and, and talking. And she came down to visit a couple of times. And I couldn't figure it out, dude. She's, she's like working part-time, 30 hours a week. But she had more money than me <laughs> to go jaunting around. And, what, and I'm like, how does this work? You know? So... Anyhow, we just kept doing that, and uh, eventually I asked her to marry me, and she got her visa, and she moved down here. Dude, that is an awesome story. When you said you met on the internet, I was thinking you met on, like, (laughs) (laughs) truckdriversonly.com. But you met through YouTube. That is a genuine way to meet someone through just general interest and conversation that and it, it's so amazing how connections are made. Like right now, me and you are talking to each other just because of a connection we made out at a wildlife area. Exactly. And I think so many people miss that. They're looking for like love and relationships in all the wrong places. When sometimes relationships are right in front of you, you just got to talk to those individuals or make that small connection that can blossom into something amazing. Right, I mean, it's the same thing. I've been going out to Lee Cave for a couple of years now, you know, and there's an old man that walks around the grounds out there. He walks about five miles every day, you know, rain or shine, snow, mud, he, he walks. And he's, you know, in his 70s, I'm guessing. Were you talking to him as I was approaching? Yes. Okay. So, so Anyhow, we got to talk uh, over the last year or so, you know, he'll walk by, I'll say hi, and we might stop and have a little chit chat for a few minutes and, you know, on his way again. So the other day I was like, I don't think I've ever introduced myself to him. So, you know, he stopped and I says, I don't think I introduced myself. I said, my name's Grant Hickman. And he gets this stunned look on his face. He goes, Really? He goes, I'm Steve Richardson. I'm your cousin. <laughs> Holy cow. Right? Small <laughs> <laughs> so, world. Yeah. So anyhow, I was, I've always kind of been is, interested in Utah history and the people, and, you know, and the times and all the history of Utah. So I did a lot of research on that. And my parents and my my older sister, they're both into genealogy big time. And I kind of, you know, I took interest in it. I'm a little bit fascinating. So I come to find out one of my ancestors was a gay, guy named Wild Bill Hickman, Williams Adams Hickman. And so my mom gave me a book years ago called... Uh, Wild Bill Hickman or whatever, and and in, anyhow, started reading it. Come to find out, this guy was one of Brigham Young's Avenging Angels. So basically, him and Porter Rockwell are the two most famous, mm-hmm. and they were like the enforcers for Brigham Young. So if Brigham Young wanted somebody bumped off, guess what? So. Never got charged for any of these crimes or murders, but they mm-hmm. say he could have killed anywhere from a hundred one to a hundred people, and nobody knows. Wow. So, anyhow, I found this very fascinating, and and then uh, so I 
I just, this guy out there at Lee K, he put together a website called Hickman's Homestead website or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the genealogy, the stories and everything that he has picked up, he made is a fabulous website. And I got a lot of, so I went to his website for like couple years religiously trying to find all the information I could so yeah when he told me who he was I was like oh yeah that is so cool yeah it's just amazing though how just a little interaction like that because for like a year walking by saying hi and no we don't know a thing and then all of a sudden just because I introduced myself come to find out you know which was just really cool dude that is so cool and it's so eye-opening to just reinforce that idea of say hello to people that you see well that was just like when we you came out there to lee k you were walking by and i think i rolled my window down and said something asked something to you and we talked started chit-chatting for a little bit and i was like yeah i really like this guy you know he's doing quite a lot of stuff and things yeah. like that so and you never know you, you know dude you never know that if that's one thing i can say like the amount of people i've been blessed with in my life like i've never had a huge uh family presence but i have been amazed by all the individuals i've met in my life and their stories and just the insight lessons and blessings they've brought into my life by getting to know some of these people like just i mean the opportunities for meeting people that i've had is just i i can't be any more grateful than i am and it's just the fact of having that little bit of socialness like it was really weird i was in um getting my oil changed about a year ago and i'm in there and just sitting and another gentleman comes in and he sits next to me and we just strike up this conversation. And as we're talking, we're having this fun time, just chit-chatting about what he used to do, what I do, his life, my life. And I notice everyone around us is like this. And for the people who can't see this, they're all heads in their cell phones, ignoring everything around them. Yeah. And I just wish people would put down their phones because we're all striving for connection with people and just start connecting again in that old school way. And I mean, back in the sixties and seventies when I was growing up, you knew your neighbors. Now I have no idea who lives next door to me or behind me or whatever. The neighbors used to watch us as kids, you know, and everybody kept an eye on each other and stuff like that. But now it's like, no, you don't know anybody. And, yeah. And I'm the type of person that walks up and one line quips to everybody, you know, just makes a little con- comment. You know, when I go to the grocery store, the cashiers, you know, I'll say something to them, you know, trying to be funny or whatever, you know. It's it like the other day I walked into Walmart. There were two cops standing there, two West Valley <laughs> cops standing in there. Uh-huh. I went walking in. I said, you guys look like you're up to new, no good. Ain't shoplifting or anything, are you? <laughs> <laughs> They're like, not yet, you know. But yeah. I just, I just like to start something going, mm-hmm. you know. And and 
I, I love talking with people. I enjoy talking with people. Everybody's got a story, you know. Might not be good, might be bad, but whatever. I've, I've met bad people that went to prison and stuff like that. Some nice people I met. Yeah, one, um, I used to work at this local music shop. Um, and the owner of the music shop, his uh, brother was getting released from prison. And his brother wanted to come work with him. Well, the Utah probation, parole board, whatever, didn't like the idea of his brother being his supervisor. Totally understand. So they agreed to me, this 18-year-old kid at the time, for me to be the supervisor of his brother coming into the store. And he asked if I would do it. And I was like, sure. But I'm like super nervous because I'm like, your brother was in prison? What for? Like, you know, and I get all these prejudgments in my head. Like, this guy's going to be no good criminal. I don't, you know, come to find out through just working closely with him. He was one of the funniest guys I ever met, had a lot of insight, made some bad decisions in life, but was doing everything to correct that and was a great guy. And, uh, he ended up, uh, passing away due to, uh, he got murdered a few years ago and it just, it really struck me in a way that, I had an emotional response to him losing his life because before that, my prejudices were there. Like, wow, criminal, blah, 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 no good, low life. Just like we were talking about how some people will judge the homeless. And it's important to just treat everyone as a human being, like you said, with their own stories. Exactly. And to me, there's no room in this world for prejudice. We're all the same. We all get up in the morning, put our pants on the same. We're all doing the best we can to get through this shitty little life together the best way we know how. And and I'm not here to judge you. I, I, I mean, the, the Mexicans come across the border. How would I feel if I was Mexican? What would I be doing? I'd be trying to cross the border. So I'm not judging them. There's some of the hardest work and nicest people I've ever met in my life. Are they illegal? Maybe I don't care. Yeah, treat me nice, I'll treat you nice. But but as far as prejudices against a race of people or, or classes of people, I got no room for that in my life. I got no room for people like that in my life. I couldn't agree more. Um, I always, I have some family members. Like we all have those family members, and some of them have those preconceived very negative, vile emotions and opinions about people from south of the border, whether it be Mexican, Colombian, Venezuelan, whatever, you know, coming over here, taking our jobs. I'm like, bullshit. They're not taking your job. And if they do take your jobs, probably because they're working harder than you. So you out there picking onions and what like that, that's your job? Yep. And you're, I, you're working in a hotel, cleaning hotels. That you, that's your job, right? How they take it. You won't take that job. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. And I, I, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I worked at Memorial Estates, and when I went into that job, I was the only one of the only white people on the grounds crew. All of the uh, Mexicans and other uh, Hispanic people that I worked with. I would say they were mostly all illegal. 
I uh, befriended this guy named Sergio. He knew like no English. And, but we would communicate and I learned a little Spanish. He was learning a little English. One of the nicest guys I ever met. Worked super hard. He would always give me crap, calling me gringo and stuff. And we would tease each other back and forth. And I, I remember uh, being the only white uh, guy on the crew. They would always, they'd bring peppers every other Friday. And they would all put money in a pot to see if I could finish this pepper. And it started out with, you know, the jalapeno, then went to the habanero, then the ghost pepper and all this stuff. I'd always win all the money. And then they were finally like, you crazy gringo, we give you no more money. <laughs> You're insane. But I had such a good time working with those people. And that experience taught me that I don't care what skin color you are. I don't care what your religion, your sexuality, how you identify. People are as people. And you just treat them with the respect you want. Yes. You treat them. You treat me nice. I will treat you nice. You know, and that's bottom line. That's all you got to do. Treat people nice. You know, and when, when we left LA and went to Paige, my dad told me, he goes, uh, there's going to be Indians up there. I'm 12 years old. The only Indians I've seen are John Wayne on the movies. So I'm expecting breech clout, headdresses, all this. Get up there and they're dressed just like me. And I'm like, what? You know, where's, where, where, where's the Indians? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And we ended up moving in next to a family that had been there since beginning of page and they became my family they were more a family to me than my own family okay because our family was every every man for himself kind of thing we had a large family there were eight kids and my mom and dad dad's out working he's never home my mom's big into religion. I'm not. So they had they had a big family too, the Indian family, and they had kids my age just going to school with them and everything. So I ended up living with them. I I basically moved in there, and they kind of adopted me. They they called me son and brother and whatever you know. And I would go out to the reservation with them. You know, they had a hogan out there, and going to all the ceremonies and stuff they had and you know they're teaching me all the Indian ways I never could learn the Navajo language uh -huh. but it's just some of the things I saw and and, and stuff uh and, and I tell you you go to those ceremonies like a squaw dance or yebache one white guy 500 Indians and you stick out like a sore thumb because you're six foot tall, but they all knew not to mess with me because of who my mom was, mm -hmm. you know. So, and she always introduced me as my as her, her son and everything, you know. So, just just learning their ways and stuff was just uh, fascinating. And, and you couldn't ask for a better childhood growing up like that. And I mean. The first time I walked into the Hogan when we went out there, I walk in, immediately hang a right. You should have, the jaws dropped. They were like, oh, Jesus, 
freaking white kid. <laughs> we're we're going to have to go do a cleansing prayer now because you don't walk in backwards. Everything is clockwise. I walk counterclockwise. That's bad juju. You don't do that. So, so you know, I didn't know any better, but, mm-hmm. but it's just things like that. And they, they would laugh at me and whatever, you know, but they, they treated me with respect and they were very... They treated me like I was their own kid. They seriously did, and and I respect them immensely. I know a lot of people try to go this route of, yeah, I'm part Indian, you know. I got two drops of Indian blood in me. I'm part Indian. I never professed to be an Indian, mm-hmm. okay? I knew I was white. I knew there was a difference between us. So I wasn't privy to everything they knew. And, and, you know, they had things they would not tell me because I was white, Mm -hmm. which was fine with me. But they also taught me a lot of other stuff, you know, about their ways and stuff like that, which I would have never learned, you know, and I'm glad I was given the opportunity to learn this with them. That's really cool. Yeah, it was it was amazing. That that's awesome. And so many people grow up in their communities and they never experience like that culture shock. Like I, I remember vividly my first culture shock and it was this is gonna sound stupid to a lot of people, but in Utah it's prime predominantly white. And I mean I mean like white white here. I, I didn't see the first years I was here in Utah. I didn't see any black people up here at all. Yeah, and it, it it's, I mean, there are here now, but not like back east. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, for my honeymoon, um, when I was married, me and my wife went to Kentucky. We went to Louisville, and we got off the airplane in Louisville, and I was like, we're the only white people here. And it was such a culture shock to me. And I can, I almost, it was like that reverse, like, oh, now I can kind of feel like maybe what the African-American people feel in Utah where, you know, and I, I'm glad that that is changing throughout our society. Yes. But it was a good experience for me to, you know, the white sheltered Utah kid. Like I was used to Hispanics, but not to the African-Americans. Yeah, I and mean, growing, growing up in L.A., there were a lot of black people and uh, they actually had the Watts riots back in, I think it was 66, mm-hmm. where they started burning, you know, a lot of, and that scared the hell out of me. Scared, you know, that was scary because, again, the communities I lived in, the schools I went to, they were white kids. I don't recall any black kids in those schools I went to. But, you know, then later on in life when I was, driving truck and stuff and you drive through watts it's intimidating mm-hmm. it is it you, can be you know you're the only white person and it's like kind of like get me out of here and and you know most of these people are probably genuinely nice people mm-hmm. and and you know i about a year ago i did work with a kid that was black and and i trained him to transport heavy equipment stuff like that and he'd been in prison and everything, but one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Me and him got along real good. Got no prejudice against him, you know, and he could tell that. He could tell I was only interested in his 
being a person and me trying to help him become the best he could at this job, you know, and we became really good friends. Well, I, I'm so glad you're able to do that as a human and look past people's, look past their backgrounds, their ethnicities, respect their cultures, like you were saying when you were a child growing up in that. That is so amazing. And more of us need to start doing that, like accepting people for just who they are, regardless we of We just need any to get along. Just treat everybody with respect. That's all it is. Exactly. There would be no wars. There would be no problems, you know. But and, and but it's basically, you know, the people in the higher positions that create the problems, you know. And it's not the, the people like you and me that don't control this because we do treat people with respect and, and, and understand I understand that you may not have as good a life as me and whatever, mm-hmm. and, and I feel bad for you. I wish you had what I had, but I also know I'm not living up in the avenues or Park City in a mansion. Yeah. I don't want that. That's not what I want. But to me, the money part of it is immaterial to me. I mean, I make enough to get by. I'm not rich but I make enough to get by, and that's all that matters. I can't take it with me. I don't want to be rich. I don't want to live that lifestyle. And I'm, I got nothing against rich people either. Yeah. You know, they a lot of them made it, you know, great. But, you know, a lot of them didn't. They were handed it to them, you know, and a lot of them can be assholes, but a lot of other people can be assholes too. You know, your neighbor can be an asshole. I don't know. Yeah. But, but you just need to respect other people and realize that everybody is just here to do the best they can, whatever it is. So I can't be envious of those people, you know, great. They got money, fine. A lot of them ain't happy though, you know? I try to be happy, whatever it does to make me happy. You know, you know what strikes me from you that my takeaway from this whole conversation is you seem to be someone who lives their life, like you said, very um, conscious that we only have a short amount of time. Like you said, we're a grain of sand in the whole time spectrum. And you seem to be not about material, not about money, but about experience. And that to me is like the way to live life. Because like you said, any of your possessions aren't going with you. But at the end of the day, it's those experiences, those moments, those tender moments with those you love, those you interact with. That's what's going to make your life the most rewarding, I believe. Exactly. Well, Grant, I can't thank you more than I already have, but again, I want to say thank you very much for coming on the podcast and having this conversation with me. I can't wait to meet your wife and have a conversation with her if she's willing to come on because she sounds like an amazing lady as well. And any lasting thoughts for the people out there? Live life while you got it, brother. I mean, you ain't getting another one. There ain't no... Ain't no go around. Yep, it's not like a video game. There's yeah, no restart, yeah. right? So, 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 just live and try and do what you can, and do it the best way you can. You know, 
Just be, just be good. Well, there you go. You said it so well. Um, to end this, I'm going to end it in the same way I always do. Treat people kindly out there and be happy, humble, and humorous. And we'll catch you on the next one. Go check out Grant Hickman. He has a Facebook page where he posts all of his amazing photography. And he's got some really, really killer shots that I am envious of on some <laughs> of his eagles. But go check him out. And uh, we'll catch you guys all on the next one. Have a great night, day, morning, wherever you're at in the world. And we'll see you later.